Hi everyone, this is Tanya Luna. And I'm Brian Luna. And you're listening to Talk Psych to Me. This is going to be a listener question segment called Talk Talk Psych Psych to You. This is from Andrea Crow, and it reads, I'm curious about the phenomenon... Phenomenon. I'm curious about the phenomenon of so ugly it's cute, like a pug or a bubble eye fish. Is the desire to take special care of something kind of ugly, like cute aggression, in reverse? I think this is a really fun question, although I think the answer is going to be simpler than it seems. So I'm going to just Google for you, so ugly it's cute. So wait, is this a, a Google answer? No, I'm not just going to Should we go- be <laughs> answering the question? No, or just- I'm just going to show you some pictures and I'm, I'm going to ask for your hypothesis and I'll tell you what I'm pretty sure it is. Um, oh my gosh. We're looking at some images. Let's look at this, oh this fellow right okay. here. Okay, so first of all, there's a dog that has, it's all hair and face and eyes and these two little toothpick legs, or four, I'm, I'm assuming, uh, but... <laughs> It's re- yeah, yeah. Just giant bulging eyes. A giant bulging eyes. Furry thing. And then what's that? Let's it's- look at this. I think this is an eye eye. Oh my god, I love these things. It looks it looks like my grandfather, to be honest with you. Uh <laughs> it ha it's it's balding, which is weird because the rest of it is covered in hair. <laughs> Poor thing. It has no hair on its face and these two terrified eyes. And it has these two little rat claws that are digging into the ground. And it looks just absolutely terrified and so pathetic, and I want one. <laughs> okay, so looking at this and thinking about our episode on cute aggression. Oh, so ugly it's cute is still cute. Yeah. So it's cute aggression. I would call it ugly despite being cute. Aggression. <laughs> <laughs> or, maybe, or maybe it's that it's, like I'm looking at another one. This is a chihuahua with just the most giant forehead. Oh my God. The most bulbous eyes. Um, and these tiny legs, tiny chin. So this is still infantile physiological morphology. Yes. And basically, Whoa. it's just cute. And I think we would look at this chihuahua and think it was ugly if it had tiny little beady eyes or a, like a, a lumpy, tiny little forehead. But yeah. because it still has essentially baby features. Sure. Despite its ugliness, it's still adorable oh, wow. and want to take yeah, care of it. Yeah. And maybe there's something about it being ugly that makes it even more pathetic. Right. Which makes us want to be even more Take caring. care of it. Yeah. More. Yeah. yeah just exactly. as much. Okay. Exactly. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you for, for your question. question. Andrea, that um, was a good question. We've got another question here from another listener. All right. So this question is from Alyssa Green, and she would like to know about how psychologists go about setting up experiments to test theories on evolutionary biology, given that they can't be tested like other scientific theories. How do you go about designing something like that? What's your guess about this before I share my own perspective on it? How they set up tests for evolutionary biology? Yeah, I, I time machine, um, <laughs> sci, sci-fi. Um, I'm guessing uh, 3D holograms, uh, perhaps animation. Those are my guesses. Throughout our history, the environment essentially led certain individuals to survive with the with certain characteristics, and some characteristics couldn't make it, and so they died off. And so evolutionary psychology or biology is essentially the study of what were those adaptive characteristics that led to our survival and reproduction. So you don't know without having a time machine for sure what happened. Like a lot of people say, why do we have wisdom teeth? What's your theory around why we have wisdom teeth? Because the other ones are done. <laughs> I would imagine that we needed needed wisdom teeth in the past to chew different types of food. Right. And so a lot of people will say, oh, we have something, we do something, therefore there's a perfectly good explanation for it. It must be adaptive in some Mm -hmm. way. However, that's not always the case. Sometimes we have stuff for no good reason. For example, when you look at kind of evolution in real time, 
Typically, that's done in genetics or breeding studies. For example, there was an accidental experiment that was done in Russian fox fur farms. What they wanted to do was actually domesticate their foxes because it sucks to have foxes constantly biting you while you're trying to kill them and right, take right. their that fur. Would be, that would Such be a, a pain. Really big pain. Such a bummer. <laughs> so the, they were thinking, awesome, we are going to have... Friendly foxes. And I can say this because I'm from Ukraine, so (laughs) close enough. (laughs) And so what they did was they bred over and over and over and over again the friendliest foxes. The way that they tested this was essentially they would just stick their hand in a glove into a cage of foxes. And the ones that didn't bite them, they'd be like, you friendly fox. I will have you have baby with other friendly fox. And then over and over and over again, they would do this. So this is certainly basically like... um, expedited evolution. They were hoping that it would just be easier to handle these foxes, but what they didn't realize is that the morphology, the fur of the foxes actually started to change and the character the physical characteristics of the foxes started to change and they started to look more like dogs. Interesting. So they actually started to have um, markings on their fur that looked a lot more like what dogs look like today, which then screwed the whole plan of having, you know, friendly foxes for fur. Gotcha. They started having floppy ears and they started just acting a lot more like dogs. If you use the evolutionary lens, you go, oh, why do they have these different colors? It must be because it helped them blend in or something like that. But really, it might just be totally random and it's unrelated to the thing that was actually adaptive, which was the friendliness. Gotcha. So that's the danger of assuming things about why certain characteristics are adaptive. So the way that you test it in this day and age, aside from actually like trying to do breeding experiments, which you can't do with humans, and I think you probably shouldn't do with other animals as well, the really only way that you can test it is to form a hypothesis and then try to see, does it play out today? Does it play out under the conditions we currently have? So for example, researchers have looked at the question of whether embarrassment is adaptive. So why do we feel embarrassed, for example? And you can have this hypothesis of, um, we must have evolved with this feeling of guilt or embarrassment because it's supposed to teach us not to make certain mistakes again. Hmm. So that's an interesting hypothesis. And so basically what you would do is you could say, if we induce guilt in someone, will that change their behavior? So for example, in studies of guilt and embarrassment, researchers might do something like look at how guilt prone someone is and then see if that leads someone to be less likely to cheat on a test. And that is a frequent finding. If I am more likely to feel guilt, I'm actually less likely to do things that are societally considered wrong. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So that's one way that you can test it. And what's really important to remember is when we're talking about evolutionary psychology, we're not talking about, are these things useful today? We're talking about, were these things useful thousands of years ago? And this is why there's some behaviors that we have that are maladaptive to today's environment. So maybe getting really, really angry about something was important back when resources were super scarce and I needed to like scare someone away immediately. Whereas today, if I get really, really angry because someone, you know, took the last cup of coffee or something like that, that's probably not going to be great for my survival (laughs) and for my reproduction, my reproductive future. That's true. (laughs) So that's the idea. Oh, how about this? I have a question. What is the psychological... Are you a listener? I'm listening to you now. Okay. Then you're a listener. What's the psychological benefit of a strong imagination? Mm. Just deducing from the benefits that I've seen in my own life, you know, the benefits are things like um, better problem solving skills. If I need to get out of a pickle, I can leverage imagination as a strength to figure out how to solve that problem Um, more creatively. Maybe I can come up with more solutions. Imagination can also be a form of enrichment. So if you're feeling really bored or disengaged, imagination can be a way to sort of 
make yourself feel more interested. It could be a coping mechanism. Uh, so if I'm using imagination as a form of escapism, for example, daydreaming, thinking about a more pleasant situation could be really valuable. There's also research that suggests that imagination could be dangerous. So for example, an NYU researcher, Gabrielle Ottingen, she found that actually people who spent more time fantasizing about a particular goal that they wanted to achieve Mm -hmm. were less likely to achieve that goal. Interesting. Any thoughts on why that might be? Maybe because in their imaginations, it was always going to be better then it's almost like the reality always pales in comparison exactly but in in your imagination it's way beyond your your actually experience in real life you might say wildest dreams in your wildest dreams it's way beyond your wildest in dreams. your wildest dreams it's even beyond those wildest dreams <laughs> so doubles down infinite into infinite wild everyone says like if you can dream it you can do it yeah. but essentially what this research shows is if you dreamt it you probably won't do it <laughs> Those posters. I want to make that. We'd make a fortune if you can dream it. You chances are you won't do it. (laughs) So her explanation of this is that (laughs) dreaming about it, thinking about it, essentially already gives you that burst of positive emotion that makes your brain feel like you've already succeeded, Mm -hmm. and so you're no longer motivated to get it done. And maybe to your point, the reality of it, realizing how much effort you're gonna have to put in to getting there when you've already experienced it, it. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I would imagine that the people who are really imaginative. They probably are at risk of doing less because they're creating these amazing fantasies and it's really hard to live up to those fantasies. But at the same time, if they can push themselves to act on those ideas, they can be incredibly effective because they have this advantage of being able to come up with solutions and ideas and worlds that the typical person can't imagine. Which is, you've just summed up why I've never played in the NBA. (laughs) Is because Finally. I've imagined it and right. I'm like, why, why even bother? Yeah, so be careful I mean, taking too much time to daydream. Yeah, because... I mean, because I'm like, why even bother? I mean, I could totally do Okay, being 5'5 five five doesn't help, but like... Five it... and a half. Whoa. And that brings us to the end of our segment. Thank you for talking. Psych, Psych to me. me.